This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Ben Oakry, author of Prayer for the Living. When you actually start to think of the story and start to write it, the idea is no longer an idea. It is, it is an, an embodiment waiting to be crafted into being. We'll be back with Ben Oakry in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization, more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice, as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. This interview with Ben Oakry was organized by the Miami Book Festival, which is available on demand for free all year. Learn more at miamibookfaironline.com. My guest today is Booker Prize-winning author Ben Oakry, who has published 11 novels, four volumes of short stories, four books of essays, and four poetry collections. He also writes plays and screenplays. His work has been translated into more than 25 languages. 
Okri's Booker Prize winning novel was The Famished Road. He was born in Nigeria, and his childhood was divided between London and his home country, where he witnessed the consequences of civil war. Much of Okri's work entails themes of time, questions of reality, and the power of storytelling. Many of his stories are reminiscent of folktales and entail a spirit realm and offer deep, resounding questions about the nature of being. His newest story collection, Prayer for the Living, contains 23 stories set around the world and in various time periods. From Byzantium to the Andes, a printer shop in Lagos to London, the characters are dealing with mysteries, selfhood, family ties, physics, and secret sex, among other conundrums. We began the discussion with Ben Okri, talking about Prayer for the Living and how the collection came together. It's, it's rare that you set out to write a, uh, a book of stories, unless, unless it's um, a deliberately linked book of stories, um, in which case it really is uh, a novel pretending to be a book of stories or vice versa. These were stories that were written over a very long period of time. Um, I think the earliest, the title story is almost uh, 25, 26 years old. Um, and they, they kind of range from all the different decades that I've been writing recently. Uh, but the thing is, they're not put together in a haphazard way. They, they, I can only really bring out a volume of stories if the, if the stories form a kind of a family, form a kind of a, a interconnected, intercommunicating link uh, in which the, the meaning, the story, the imagery, the metaphor, the theme of one links and dances with that of another. So they have to, they have to come together and be a family, be a, a movement, if you like, have their energies directed from the same place and towards the same aesthetic, uh, political and spiritual goals. So do you think about that thematically? No, I just trust to the fact that there's a kind of a, uh, there's a, kind of a cyclicity to, 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 to the way one writes stories and to the fact that at any given point, certain things become foremost in your imagination. You don't have to force it. And that over a period of time, these things link together. Sometimes the things you might write in, say, a six-month period may have less to do with one another than things that you've written over a 20-year period. Um, and it's because, I think, um, the, 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 the mind, the aesthetic self, the psychic self, returns to certain themes over, over big periods of time. And so about every seven years or every 10 years, I, I sort of return to certain themes of childhood, or I return to certain themes of the relationship between magic and reality. Um, whereas if I were writing one story after another, I'll do one thing and then skip towards something else completely different. So it's that connection through time that I'm really fascinated by. And that's the, ten, that tends to be the guiding principle of, um, of a book of stories or even a book of poems. So you, you mentioned sort of um, questions of reality, and I know that that has been embedded in your work for a long time and one of your preoccupations. And I'm wondering if it's changed over time how you write about it or just how you think of, about it, if, if you've come to conclusions that have changed what you write or how you think. Yeah, I don't think you really come to conclusions. I think you, I think you come to constant discoveries. Um, and each new discovery widens uh, a, an aspect of a, of a, of a preoccupation um, or an interest or a, or, or a thematic inclination. It's the new discoveries, a new discovery, a new thought, a new realization, uh, sometimes even a minor illumination can just open up 
um, the way in which I perceive the relationship between reality and magical myth uh, and reality. And sometimes it's very personal and intimate, and sometimes it takes a larger form, uh, the, the movement of things in society over or a period of time. Um, so I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's, uh, you, that one's artistic development has to do with conclusions, more to do with new questions. Uh, maybe even the way in which the soul just grows into a, a higher way of expressing, um, uh, expressing itself on these, on these themes. Um, so much earlier, I was interested in myth and reality as it played itself out um, in, in, in society and in, and in the individual, in power. And now I'm interested in it and how, in how it plays itself out in, 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 in relationships, um, in, uh, in, in, in dreams, in violence. Um, you know, it's just different aspects of it sort of gets, gets a different kind of light shone on it. Um, and I think that's how one develops. One develops in a, in a faceted way, uh, um, actually. And each facet is a new dimension. I mean, I know you had a varied childhood going from Nigeria to England and back to Nigeria and had to face the civil war there. And I'm wondering about your sensibility of the world. And I guess if you have siblings, like if, if you became more fascinated with myth and and reality and similar questions, and maybe a sibling of yours wasn't as interested do you think that's nature versus nurture? Do you think that's just things that you saw? I'm just kind of curious about like where that comes from. That's a mystery. It's um, it, that's a complete mystery. I don't think anybody can really honestly answer that question. Um, I think I think everybody brings certain preoccupations with them, whether you're a writer, an artist, or not. Everyone brings certain preoccupations with them into this life. They bring certain certain things that, 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 that fascinate them, certain things that, that obsess them, certain, certain aspects of, of the world and of reality that, that engages them. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, how we, it's how we begin to talk about the, the mysterious nature of taste. Why do we like certain kinds of books, certain kinds of music, certain kinds of moods, certain kinds of colors more than others? And it becomes more complex when you're talking about uh, the artistic mind and the artistic spirit. Um, I think we bring these. I think we bring certain preoccupations with us, and the world awakens the depths and the dimensions of those particular preoccupations. Um, and so, two people, uh, a whole family, could have gone through the same sort of experiences, and each come out with completely different conclusions, uh, you know, you know um, and live their lives in completely different ways as a result of a, the apparently same sort of stimulus or stimuli. Um, so I wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say it's what the world does to you. It's what the world awakens in you, but what it awakens is what's already there in you, and that is an abiding mystery that not even um, the greatest psychologist or philosopher alive could begin to answer. I think too, there's like an interplay between the things that preoccupy you and what the world presents. It's almost like the same as as maybe you're working on, on a problem and you're writing. And because you're working on that problem, when you walk around the world in your life, the answer might come because you're seeing the world through that lens. And you might find the answer to the end of a story or something a character should say because you are working that problem out in your mind all the time. So the world is kind of reflecting back to you. And maybe this idea of reality and, and unreality 
is kind of similar philosophically, do you think? Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating point because uh, absolutely that, that does happen. The world does respond to your inner preoccupation. Sometimes the world apparently seems to mirror you. It's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's the strangest thing. I don't know if it is that the world is mirroring you or that you are seeing out of the infinite richness of what is there, the things that you are seeing because you're seeing them, because you're interested in them. Or even whether there, there is a kind of a, a, um, an affinity, a kind of a, like a musical connection between what we're interested in and how the world um, seems to throw that back at us. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't work like that. Sometimes you're working on a problem in a, in a story or a novel and the world <laughs> gives you nothing back. You know, <laughs> it gives you nothing for like years and just put, you just put it away. I had a couple of stories I have like that put away for 17 years because nothing um and then one day it it, it it just solves itself um so i think uh i think what you're saying has two levels of truth to it the depth charge truth which is a deep deep things that you're working with from the deep deep parts of yourself finds you know, mysterious and indirect answers and indirect reflections in, in in the world in ways that you couldn't begin to suspect um, and then the level that we were, we're talking about. Take a book like uh, The Freedom Artist, for example. I've been thinking about this theme most of my life. I began it, you know, about uh, you know, 10, 7 years ago, um, working on it. Um, and yet, um, many, many contemporary events played their way into the book, you know, before the book was, you know, um, b before before it was actually real in the world, these things were already there in the book, if you know what I mean. So sometimes it's as if, you know, the, the writer, the artist is able to tap into levels of time, not apparent at the moment, but which become apparent, you know, um, sometimes after the publication of a book, sometimes many, many, many years uh, later. And I don't think I'm talking about prophecy, I'm just talking about the buried levels of reality, archeological levels of reality that reveal themselves. Uh, and sometimes the artist just, you know, touches upon the layer while going through their own personal preoccupation. It's very, very, very strange. I felt like time in in these stories was a real essential element that you were thinking about. And I'm, I'm assuming that that carries through all of your work, but that I got out of it. You know, time is is simultaneously and, and rubbing up like the past and the present are kind of rubbing up against each other in in magical ways and the, and the future yes the past the present and the future rub up against one another um as you as you said wonderfully um and sometimes um they're like a an entangled twine um kind of like a strands of a rope all woven uh and mixed and and time time is as time is the strangest thing but you know it's only it's only in our consciousness and only in the indirect forms of the work that we do, the art that we do, the dreams that we have, it's only in those indirect ways that we um, uh, experience this strange rubbing up against one another that time does that you, 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 you talked about. Um, in, our, in our conscious daily life, um, our minds are structured in such a way as to really oscillate um, between past and present, um, more often, more often in present, but in sort of lazy sort of ways, and passed through memory and in, in the ways in which that filters in. But in our deeper consciousness, um, I think all those levels are like uh, 
uh, like the mingled waters of a, of, a, of a stream. Well, these questions came up the most for me in, in this collection in your short story called Alternative Realities Are True. And this is a story about a detective in England who is trying to solve a murder, but during the course of the story, he is seeing people have existed in two places at once. Like, for instance, they arrested who they thought was the perpetrator, but at the same time they arrested him, he was also seen at a cafe. And time sort of bends, and he's fighting back a little bit with his boss about how to solve the crime. And you have a line in there that says, he knew all dead ends are an illusion designed to bring motion to a halt. To those who can see beyond the illusion, dead ends are portals into unknown possibilities. And that was one of my favorite lines in, in the book. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the line and then and then the story, sort of your inspiration and, and the process of writing it. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, yes, it's, it's one of my... Uh unexpected stories. I've been wanting to write a story that expressed this feeling I have about time, the mysterious nature of time, for, for a while. And I've never really found the the vehicle that, that enabled me to, to do this. Around the same time, I developed an interest in, 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 in quantum physics. Um, and I've just been reading a lot because I was interested in how that solved and how th that understood and tried to deal with uh, the nature of time. I, I think it was just uh, an accidental commission. Someone said, just asked me, asked if I'd write a detective story. I'd, I'd never written a detective story before, not really. I always wanted to write one. I said, yes, I'd love to do one, but I hope you don't mind that I said, if I do uh, a, a detective story that only I could write, um, which deals with my preoccupations with time, I said, please go ahead, you know, absolutely wonderful. And I did that. And it just, it came with the, um, it came with the opening sentence. Um, the detective had woken up in the morning and already, because it had been in the throes of this case, which involved a, 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 a quantum physicist, um, someone who was already doing a lot of research into that area. And the detective was already involved in that case. It was already kind of slightly buried in the, in the mysteries and the labyrinths of this case. Because of that, time had actually begun to sort of alter for him without his being aware of it. Um, and again, it was, I was just fascinated by the way in which our proximity to certain events, certain people, certain people with certain obsessions has a way, just like um, Einstein mentioned, talks about in terms of gravity that has to do with mass. And I was fascinated by the way in which maybe when we, when we have proximity to a big mass of energy, a big mass of violence, a big mass of an obsession, whether that mass um, might be a spiritual mass, an emotional mass, a disturbance mass, um, can actually affect um, affect those of us who are drawn into it. So I was interested in the psychic dimension of mass uh, and, and time and, and and gravity and 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 all of that. Um, and, and and the story once I was inside that world and inside that tone, which came from the first sentence. The story more or less wrote itself. I just had to really be very keenly attentive to all the different strands. So it sounds like your your way into stories, or at least this one in particular, is through these big ideas. But as a writer, you know that you also have to keep people engaged with the characters and who they are and what they look like and their surroundings. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can explain at all how that process works where you take this idea and then embody it 
into the story form. Yeah, I don't know if it does begin. I don't really know if it does begin with an idea. I'm, I'm being very, very retroactive about this. I'm saying this now, but um, but I think that um, you know, in for for the in the in the writer's mind, ideas are tactile. Ideas are things. Ideas are ideas are characters. Ideas are never abstracts, really. Um, in fact, that that's the problem with um, many writers that they have these abstract ideas and they struggle with how to make them into into real living things and it, it can induce a kind of paralysis because you're trying to force real things to express all the aspects that an idea can in, in, the, in its suggestiveness. No, I think rather that the idea has already percolated itself into the fabric of your mind and into um, the very um, way in which this story began in that first sentence. It's already the idea has already leaked into it, you know, so that when you actually start to think of the story and start to write it, the idea is no longer an idea. It is, it is an, an embodiment waiting to be crafted into being. And for, and for me, I always say this for me, it's, 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 it's musical. It has to do with tone. It has to do with beat. Um, it has to do with um, a certain inner poetry. I have to hear those opening sentences. And then suddenly that whole world is lit lit inwardly but in a muted sort of way um so for me writing that story was a double detective um story it was a detective story in itself and it was the detection by which i um induced the story to come to me um bit by bit i had to i had to be my own detective of the of the of the possibility of the story of its moods um and of its tones uh, tone is very important to me um for me, it was very much uh, a semitone story. Um, um, neither where, where where the language is always hovering between between vagueness and crispness. It could not be too crisp because the suggestiveness would go, and it could not be too vague because then nobody would read it. So if you if you go back to that opening again, it's all soaked in there, and that's that's how it worked with this this story. Every story is different. Every story requires a completely different. Um, a detective, a completely different listening, uh, almost a different personality sometimes. Um, For instance, the tone of your story, The Lie, which was probably one of my favorites in the book, it was very folktale-ish. It reminded me of something that would start to maybe almost teach a lesson if it were, were a true folktale. And it's about a king who was obsessed by the search for truth. And he basically sent out his courtiers, um, wizards, philosophers, magicians, and even a fool to travel all the world and come back and find the greatest lie that they could to see like maybe what illusions we're living with or something. And many came back with questions about death and life after death and the meaning of that. And they all came back with, you know, really big questions to give to the king. And he was sort of passing judgment on if he liked their answer. I mean, some said love is, is the greatest lie. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that story. Well, I think you've spoken about it so much more <laughs> warmly and interestingly than I, than I could, um, for which I thank you. But it's... Um, I, I was just interested in the indirect method uh, with that story. We're always searching for truth. And I thought, would it be more fruitful if we started with the opposite search, to search for the, what the greatest lies? 
it's a quest story, uh, it's, and it's a, it's a philosophical story, and I don't do those often. I wish I, I wish I, I wish I did. It's a, it's a very, very fruitful form to work with, and it's deeply seeded in my, in my, in my upbringing because I, you know, I come from a tradition in in, in Nigeria where, you know, um, stories uh, are meant to freight not only communal memory um, but also great spiritual uh, truths. You know, they're told to us by our parents um, to, to correct us, but also to guide us long, long after they've gone. So it's a really, really great old tradition, um, you know, from mother to son, mother to daughter, father to, you know, uncles and elders. Um, and it's, it's, it's a secret way in which people are, are, are taught the, 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 the great and deeper things of life. And the stories are often way above our heads. You know, we only get one small part of it. We only get the part of it that relates to animal behavior or something peculiar or funny uh, that we relate to as kids. But much later on, they kind of open up into the flower, into, you know, um, greater dimensions. And I've always been interested in stories like that. It's just they're very hard to do. Um, it took me till, you know, last four or five years till I could do something like, 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 the, like the lie. And again, it's a, again for me, it's a sort of um, a counter story to, to to my more realistic stories, where where I'm trying to look at the world through objects and through character, but at the same time I'm guided by um, something, some myth, some idea that's at the back of my mind, which must not be visible in the story. It's a different kind of rigor, this, the, the metaphysical story. Do you feel like literature has an obligation to teach? or have some kind of lesson in it? No, absolutely not. I don't think literature has an obligation to teach. If it, if it does so, it does so indirectly, sometimes unintentionally. I think literature has a, a more primal obligation than that, which is to, to make us see, feel, think, see with our mind's eye, feel with our deeper heart, to empathize, to imagine, above all, to imagine. Nothing happens if the piece of writing we're reading does not make us imagine, does not make us dream, <clears throat> does not make us see that which we've not seen before. It has to make us see and feel, and then everything else um, happens. But in order to make us see and feel, it has to brush against our sensibility in, our, in unusual ways. It has to slightly abrase, be slightly abrasive against our sensibility. If it's too smooth and pure and easy and familiar, it doesn't do, it doesn't do that work. Uh, the imagination is woken by unlikely uh, on, on, on and sometimes unfamiliar things, and that's that's the secret poetry of what good writing does. Even if it's about your own very neighborhood, it twinkles something in your mind's eye. You suddenly see the familiar world in a, in a new way. So no, it's not, the obligation is not to teach. The obligation is first of all to awaken our sensibility and our imagination and our, and our, and our hearts. It's to awaken, deepen and strengthen. And then to, to, to challenge, to stimulate, to fascinate, to seduce, to irritate, to annoy, confuse, bewilder possibly even sometimes slightly paralyze the mind, you know, stop the mind in its familiar tracks. No, the education part of, of literature is, uh, is, uh, is about four or five or six down the line, as, as far as I can see. In your story, Don Quixote, Don Quixote is sort of the African or Nigerian word for Don Quixote or how it got transformed. And it's a lot about, about reading and kind of a, a wacky guy. But also, you had a line in there that says, it's only the fires that your life lights in other people's souls that count. 
And I was thinking about that a lot in terms of, of stories, too, about lines like that or words or, or lessons or tropes that, that make people feel alive. Yes. Yeah, I think lines like that are, are completely um, unintentional, to be honest with you. It's, it's never me speaking. It's, it's, it's this Don Quixote character. Um, I get into his madness. And then it begins to fire off all these odd, sometimes contradictory things. Um, and I try and catch hold of them as best as I can. They're like, 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 like a cave of bats, you know, flying in many different directions. Uh, uh, if you're, that's, that's if you're a bat hunter, an odd preoccupation, which I've just imagined this very moment. But uh, a, a story like that is very much a parallel f- uh, in my mind of the, uh, the great Don Quixote. I wanted to sort of make a homage to... Don Quixote, as well as make a, a link between books and nations, books and sensibilities, books and people. And people think that a book like Don Quixote is very much a, a book written by a Spaniard during the golden age of, of Spanish literature. But I've always maintained that a book like Don, Don Quixote, like all great books, actually may have affinities elsewhere, and that Don Quixote is an African, is a Nigerian. In fact, I know the exact village he comes from. He's not a Spaniard at all. That's one of the things that, that, that fascinates me, the, the resemblances across races and cultures and time, the ways in which literature seems to come from one place, but actually encountered in other places, suddenly seems to have sprouted from that, from that, from that earth. Um, the great Nigerian writer, Walisha Inca, you know, claims that Shakespeare was an African. Uh, he's, he's making exactly the same point. And yeah, and uh, it was a lot of fun to just 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 playing with that the, the resemblances um, across time and across space, um, the ways in which certain characters actually are universal. Dreams were another thing that comes into a lot of your stories, um, probably most prominently in a story, one of the longest in the collection is called Dreaming of Byzantium, which is about a man who had dreamed about going somewhere. I mean, he, he wanted to go to Istanbul more than anything. Um, and, and you say in the beginning of the story, places we have failed to get to exert a profound fascination, which probably heightened his desire to go there. And then in a dreamlike state, he was there. And he, he was also trying to figure out if his, a woman who was accompanying him was his dream made manifest. And um, what what um, what dreams were like and how you live them out. And you have a line in there about unreality makes the world real. And he's just trying to navigate being in this place he always wanted to be in. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about that story. Yeah, you, you seem to pick the hardest stories to talk about. <laughs> Byzantium and, 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 and dreams. Again, uh, that story came about because of my fascination with the word Byzantium itself and the way in which the world, the word seemed to have a whole, whole world in it. It's quite different from the word Turkey. The word itself was like a time capsule. It was like um, a miniature world. And I've, uh, dreams, uh, dreams have an abiding fascination for me. But then I always say, you know, I, when I speak of dreams, I don't mean dreams just in terms of what we do at night when we fall asleep. I also mean the conscious, the conscious and the not-so-conscious activity of the mind. And I also mean the way in which reality itself sometimes seems to bend. So dreams is not just a night thing. Um, sometimes we dream with our eyes wide open. Um, sometimes uh, our, our reality, our day-to-day life, sometimes in certain states, um, things bend a little bit. 
bend a little bit out of shape, bend a little bit out of sequence. Um, and mysterious things happen to us in the margins of our vision, in the mar sometimes in the margins of our lives. Uh, and I'm fasc just fascinated by um, all that um, and the impact that they have on us um, and whether they are real or not um, 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 and how useful they are as, as states to investigate. It's just a, it's just a way really of, of, of trying to um, um, investigate the mysteries of consciousness. Um, I just happen to think that um, inside us, uh, where this is a vaster, vaster place um, than we can ever imagine, um, it's bigger inside us than, than our external measurements. You know, you measure someone's height, you know, six by, you know, from the front to the back, about what, six inches or, or less. Um, but the internal, but the internal world is huge. It's bigger than a continent. How do you, how do you account for that? And all of that internal world has this impact on the, on this so-called external world. I mean, where does one start and the other begin? It's, it's all of these leakages that, that, you know, it's all of these leakages that, 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 that I find extremely fruitful. Um, we've been raised to think that our lives are, are, are nicely demarcated and that there are absolute strict divisions between things and that things are as real as, uh, as, 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 you know, we're taught that they are. Um, you, but you grow old and the world blurs a little bit. And sometimes, you know, you wonder if we haven't overdefined the world. Um, it's, it's those areas I'm fascinated by. I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about in this collection was was magic. I think there's two stories where there's some kind of magic bead or some kind of some kind of object given to someone that then changes their lives. In in your story, a sinister perfection. There's a young girl who gets a bead, a blue stone from a stranger, and creates a dollhouse as much like the real house and then the dollhouse becomes sort of more real and whatever goes on in the dollhouse affects the life she's living in her real house. Yeah. You tell, you tell stories really well. I love the ways you, I love the way you tell stories and pray stories. Yeah. That's another story you've, you've chosen. That's hard to talk about. Um, and that took a long time to get right. It was, it was a bit of a nightmare, that story, to be honest with you. And I think it was partly because um, the title didn't help. You call a story a sinister perfection. You know, the sinister is going to work on you while you're working on it. And the impossibility of perfection is going to uh, freak you out while you're <laughs> trying to deal with it. But it's, uh, it's, it's a replica story. Uh, it's, 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 it works on the principle of, um, of correspondences. Uh, it works on the principle of, um, of, of sympathetic magic, which uh, uh, Fraser um, drew great attention to in his... Uh, uh, in, in his famous work on rituals and magic in, in ancient societies. The, the whole thing about sympathetic magic and the whole thing about correspondences is, is you know, operates beyond um, anthropology. It's, it's, I, I think it's, it operates at the core of, 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 of our minds. We, 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 we make connections like that. We, our, our minds do that. Our minds link things in, in terms of similarities, in terms of, in terms of rhythms. We're mesmerized by the, the, the mirroring, by things that mirror um, our interests or things that we're doing. And so the whole, the whole idea of this, of this doll's house, which was like the house that she was living in, and that, that mirrored uh, in a smaller way the, the, the bigger house and therefore the, 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 the life that they live in. 
was was uh, was 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 fascinating uh, to me. Also because it gave me a chance to investigate the the, the, the ways in which a, a magical inclination of the mind plays itself out in our destinies. The the, the ways in which we predict what happens to us because we have predicted what will happen to us. Stories really respond to those things. Magic is not just an external thing. People think of magic as being an external thing, something that is an act of illusion, an act of an act of surprise, an act of something beyond the expected and even possibly beyond the possible. But I think magic is more fundamental than that. I think magic is the is the inclination of consciousness to surpass itself. I, th I think magic is primarily, primarily uh, a consciousness thing. Um, and I think it's the reason why if you look at the history of civilization, it passes through, always passes through uh, stratas of, 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 of magic. It's almost as if we have to go through phases in which uh, we try to figure out how we can work the world, how we can make the world bend to us, move with us flow with us, flow with our intentions and uh, inclinations. It's as if we have to pass through that phase before getting to the phase of, of scientific investigation and inquiry, which then becomes another kind of magic. Take the case of a remote control. It looks like magic, but it's based on scientific principles. And I think all magic operates in the same way, with, with invisible, uh, invisible causes and invisible effects. Magic is very hard to write about and to write with, uh, to work with, because the, the craft has to be magical, but in a very, very practical, very realistic way. But it has to be, it has to be mobile and it has to be, has to be fluid enough to move from the, from the very tactile to the suggestive without actually ever becoming vague or abstract. It takes a lifetime to write well about the magical. It's very tempting to, because of the easy effects, but actually it's a swamp. It's interesting that you were mentioning sort of the scientific elements of it, because I, I know you said earlier that you were really interested in, in science and physics, and that was something you were interested in as a young, young man, and that physics is magic. I mean, just gravity is magic. Absolutely. Absolutely. God, the, unfur the, the unfurling of a flower is magic. I mean, if you really want to extend it, sight is magic. I mean, the science of sight is inexhaustible just how we see anything inexhaustible the the the, 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 the science of it yeah the, 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 the more you look at the more you look at it the more we bring magic from from the from the circus and um from the tv screen and, and locate it squarely in the everyday and that's been my that's been one of my great preoccupations actually it's just that it takes a great intensity of of of, of, of being and consciousness and um to actually be able to perceive that and then oh, a certain amount of rigor to sort of um, hold it. It's something, it's something the young are drawn to. Um, but that's why I call it a swamp. But you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Gravity is, gravity is, gravity is, gravity is, gravity is magic. Um, water, the, the way water moves. Da Vinci was fascinated by the flow of water. Just the way water moves. Inexhaustible if you just sit and stare at the pearl of water at the side of a lake. Um, the shore of a, of a river and just stare at just at water moving um, for a long time. Extraordinary. Um, but then, you know, I, I, for, me, for me, the magical, the life, is, life is imbued with the, with, with the magical, um, both in us and outside us. It's just that we kind of grow out of it, we're taught out of it, we're educated into a more limited perception of the world in which everything is boring and 
explicable and everything's got explanations and nothing is so fascinating or amazing anymore and, and all the poets in us die. And I think what real literature does is to reverse that process. Which brings me back to another one of my favorite lines. Um, Sometimes people need to be brought face to face with the incomprehensibility of the world. And that was in your alternative realities are true story. And, and that is about exactly what you just said. It's, it's about wonder. Yeah, wonder. Six letters. They don't teach wonder. Shame. Should have a class called wonder. I wonder, though, if that's in people's nature. Like, I, I can walk outside in the summer and see a field of wildflowers and be blown away. Maybe that's just in my nature. We have, you're very lucky. <laughs> but I think, it's, I, th- I think if you have that in your nature, then it's part, part of your secret responsibility to help awaken it in others, you know? Because if most, more of us saw it, saw the world that way, um, we'd just all contribute um, in our different ways to, to, to a better world. I think these things are linked. I really think it's these things are not just in a private sense of ecstasy, um, a private sense of joy. I think they also connect to the kind of world, the kind of world that we, you know, we want to live in, um, a world of, of beauty and fairness and justice and truth and rigor and discovery and laughter. I think, I think for, me, it, it, for me it connects. So wonder has political implications, but not party politics, just the rich politics of living better. Can you read a passage or describe a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm going to read T.E. Lawrence's translation of the Odyssey. I'll choose the beginning. Now, T.E. Lawrence is famous for his book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and is known as Lawrence of Arabia. And of course, because of his experience with war, he would be interested in the, in the Odyssey, which he translated um, into, into prose. Um, so you get a double sensibility here. I'll just read the beginning of book one. I'll just read a couple of sentences. Book one. By now the other warriors, those that had escaped headlong ruin by sea or in battle, were safely home. Only Odysseus tarried, shot up by Lady Calypso, a nymph and very goddess, in her hewn-out caves. She craved him for her bedmate, while he was longing for his house and his wife. Of a truth, the rolling seasons had at last brought up the year marked by the gods for his return to Ithaca. But not even there, among his loved things, would he escape further conflict. And what I love about this passage, again, is a way, uh, is the, the commingling of time. T. Lawrence op- opts to chooses to open it by saying that all the people who had gone to this, this war against the Trojans, all the warriors that had survived, they were now safely home. Um, and, I, and I think it's an extraordinary beginning because he, he says, he, he gives you at the beginning of a story, the end of many other people's stories. So see, the wars ended and those that had survived were now home. That's how he opens it. So your first question is, well, if they're all, if they're all home, why are, we, why are you telling me a story? Everyone, everyone is home. So why are you telling me a story? And then the next sentence does it. So everybody has got home except one person. And this person is Odysseus. And he isn't home because this nymph, this goddess, wants him. But he wants his wife. 
if you if you're to draw arrows indicating directions, intentions, forces, uh, you just they just flying in different directions, but coming to the same same place. Um, and that sentence where he says, "Of a truth, the rolling seasons had at last brought up the year marked by the gods for his return." So there was already a year in which the gods said, "Okay, Odysseus." This is the year when you're going to go back. It's as if his life, his fate, his all the things he was battling against, been shaped by unknown and, and and higher hands, and yet there he was, still caught in this in this in this local story of this goddess. But for me, it's just a, an an incredible way to tell, to draw you into a story. Everyone has gone home except this one person, and your your question immediately is why, and that why will carry you through the rest of the book. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, that would be true of all of it. <laughs> One of the stories that gave me great, 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 great trouble, and it doesn't, doesn't look like it, The Master's Mirror. I first heard about The Mirror at a meeting of Rosicrucians in Hampstead. I had been invited to the meeting by a doctor I met at a party. He was a man of trim appearance, hawk-like eyes, and exact manners. He gave the impression of precision in all things. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like that gave me difficulty, right? No. <laughs> it did. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. The, the whole story um, is a story about a, a magical mirror that has, that's been kept for a long time, but, um, that dates back from the... 18th century, and that passed through the hands of various great occultists. And so the mirror is charged with um, all manner of stuff. Um, and at this meeting of Rosicrucians, uh, the, the, the Magus decides to do something that hasn't been done to the mirror for uh, a long time, uh, which is to look into it. Um, and it has uh, unexpected consequences. You know, how to how do you how to tell a story um, like this so that it's so that it's um, so it doesn't jump around the place and give the impression of being you know about amazing effects and stuff like that how to tell it calmly and coolly and truthfully um, uh, that was that was a difficulty um, and it just took a long time to find the simplest and the truest point of entering that story. Because um, if, I, if I don't enter it right, the story doesn't happen. It really doesn't happen. And so many times I entered the story from many different points, and the entry was wrong. And the entry is not just the beginning. It's also the, the optimum point, just like I spoke to you about with the opening of the Odyssey. Everyone that went to the war is home, except for this one person. You know, um, He could have told the story from many different entry points, but he, that's the one that he chose, and that makes all the difference. I wanted first to be in the beginning. It had to be. It, didn't, it wasn't there in the opening when I first did it. And the whole balance of that sentence was all wrong. Um, I had to distribute those M's properly. It had to sound... There's, there's a sort of a... If you listen to it, there's an there's a E-A sound. Um, I first, uh, first heard. So it's entry. It's a soft entry. I first heard about the mirror uh, uh, again. I first heard about the mirror at a meeting of Rosicrucians in Hampstead air. It's that sound again. The, the opening had to be a mirror of the, 
um, of, of, of the story. Where do you write? In my head. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I take long walks. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My dearest friend. How have you dealt with rejection? By writing. And what is your favorite word? Illumination. Thank you so much for sharing this hour with me. I'm so appreciative, and it was a really wonderful conversation. It's a real pleasure. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Ben Oakry, author of the short story collection, Prayer for the Living. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Anouk Arud Pragrasam, who writes about a newly married couple trying to survive their wedding night amidst the civil war in Sri Lanka. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.